If you'll open your Bibles with me, we're going to we're going to go to Psalm ninety one. But first, we're going to go to First um, Chronicles five twenty five and verse twenty six. First Chronicles five twenty five and twenty six. First Chronicles five twenty five. Or as Donald Trump would say, one Chronicles. <laughs> and they transgressed against the God of their fathers, and went to whoring after the gods of the people of the land, whom God destroyed before them. And the king of Israel stirred up the spirit of Puel king of Assyria, and the spirit of Tilgath-Pilsner, king of Assyria. And he carried them away, even the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he brought them unto Halah and Habar and Hara, and to the river goes on unto this day. And then if you go with me to Psalm 91... And we're just going to read the first two verses of Psalm 91. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him will I trust. Turn to your neighbor and say, what in the world does that have to do with 1 Chronicles 5.25? <laughs> and you may be seated. My, uh, my topic tonight is dwelling, abiding, and worshiping. Dwelling, abiding, and worshiping. And I, I shortened it because really what I want to talk to you about, and this is the whole point of my message, I'm just going to give it all away right here up front. So, so if you want to leave now, you've just heard the whole thing. Uh, where you dwell influences where you abide. And where you abide influences what you worship. Where you dwell influences where you abide. And where you abide influences what you worship. So we're going to talk with the help of the Holy Ghost for just a few moments. I got a lot of ground to cover and only have until 11 o'clock to do it. So we're going to get through this as quick as we can. But you know, uh, I was studying the, the 91st Psalm and many theologians, in fact, most of them attribute the authorship of the 91st Psalm to Moses. And some of them default to it just because it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't tell us who wrote it. And Psalm 90 tells us that Moses wrote it. So they just assume that Moses would write the next one. But then there's also, uh, there's also a verse in, in verse 14 
is very similar language to a statement that Moses makes in, in Deuteronomy chapter number seven. But so what I'm going to talk to you about tonight kind of influenced, uh, influenced where my mind went with that. But I began to think about, you know, Moses is somebody that understood what dwelling was and, and some different aspects of dwelling. And, and Moses was somebody that he understood what it was to, to, to dwell in a basket in a river. He understood what it was to dwell in Pharaoh's palace. He understood what it was to dwell in this life of royalty and this pristine life and to live this prestigious life. He understood what it was to dwell at the, with the finest things at your fingertips. And then he also understood what it was to dwell as a fugitive and to have people looking for him and to be a wanted man for murder. He knew what it was to dwell on the backside of a desert. He knew what it was to dwell in tents. He knew what it was to dwell in caves. He knew what it was to dwell in the elements and the, and the heat and everything that goes along with being in the desert. He knew what it was to come to a burning bush and to dwell in the presence of God. So he's somebody that is familiar with this concept of dwelling. And then he goes in and delivers a people. And he finds a people, the people of God that were in bondage in Egypt And he goes in and delivers his people that were dwelling in bondage. They were dwelling as servants. They were dwelling as slaves. And he brings them out and he takes them into a new life where they go and they dwell in tents in the wilderness. And he's he's there to to help facilitate the presence of God dwelling in their midst. So so this term is is not unfamiliar to him. And 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 as I begin to think and go down, go go just kind of go down the, the trail of the Bible, I begin to think about. What an amazing thing it was that, that Moses would take all these people. Now, the numbers vary. I hear anywhere, some theologians will say up to 2 million people that came out of the Exodus down to as little as 500, 500 600,000. Whatever the number was, it was a mass amount of people. And now, all of a sudden, they're like, it's like, hey, we're going to go camping. Let's just go, let's all of us go camping together. How many of you have ever been camping how many of you have been camping with tens of thousands of people? <laughs> I imagine it's a whole different experience. Personally, I like camping. Now, I grew up, and we were just, we were just old-fashioned country folks, and when we went camping, you had to have duct tape, you had to have some string, you had to have something to finagle the tent to hold it up, and some bungee cords to keep the door shut. We just, you just used what you had, and you just went camping. And I'll never forget a trip that I took one time with my dad, and uh, we went up into the mountains, and it was probably October, maybe early November, and there was about two feet of snow, so we were going snow camping. And we were all prepared for it. We had our blankets, we had our sleeping bags, and we were ready to go, but my dad brought some, some city slicker friends with him from Seattle, some preacher friends that he had, and, and they wanted to come and go hunting with him. So, so they show up, and they've got all their, we, I mean, we, he's got a Coleman stove that seriously, by the time that thing finally lights, you're missing eyebrows, like your sleeves are all singed, <laughs> and uh, that was just, you just, we just used most of the stuff he had. He probably got it at a pawn shop or a thrift store or something, but we, we just went camping with it, and we enjoyed it, and all these city slicker friends of his show up with these nice new tents and these big old sleeping bags, and they got a pull-out tray on the bed of their truck that has a Coleman stove. They got all this stuff in there. And I'll never forget uh, the first night there, this guy pulls out his, his hunting gear, 
And uh, Annette, you know, you, you know this person. I'm not going to tell you who it is. Maybe I will after church. <laughs> but uh, this guy pulls out his, uh, his hunting gear, and he starts telling my dad about his hunting outfit. And my dad said, you don't go hunting in outfits. <laughs> you got a purse that matches that thing? Because <laughs> we, just, we just went out and did it. Whatever we had, we just took it with us. We had long johns under our jeans, and we're out hunting, and they're all in their fancy Gore-Tex camoed stuff they just got from Bass Pro Shop. But, but, but we went camping together, and it was, a, it was an interesting experience because there was a, a, a different, different mindsets, and we were used to different comforts of life. They were used to the finer things of life, and, and, and we weren't used to the so finer things of life, but, but we made it work. But can you imagine these hundreds of thousands of people going on this camping trip. And they go out into the wilderness, and, and they're out, they're, they're, they don't have a permanent dwelling place. So, so, so their, their home is wherever they are for the day and wherever they, wherever they set up camp. And they're in this, they're in this time of, of, of transition. And it's, it's in this journey that an arrangement is made within the camp when they set up the camp, that the tabernacle would be in the middle of the camp, and then each tribe was set up around the tabernacle. They were placed around the tabernacle. Now, to understand the rest of what I want to talk to you about, we need to look at this point first, and that is the fact, you can go study it out, but the tabernacle is in the middle of the camp, and then to the south of the tabernacle was the tribe of Reuben. And then heading west beside Reuben was Gad. And then beyond Gad a little bit further was the tribe of Manasseh. So these, these three were in a line. These three tribes were in a line. The tribe of Gad, the tribe of Reuben, and the tribe of Manasseh. They were all lined up. And it's interesting to me that when they're getting ready to enter into the promised land, the Bible tells us in Numbers chapter 32, verse number 1, that now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Jazar and the land of Gilead, that behold, the place was a place for cattle. And then verse number 5 of Numbers 32 Wherefore they said, if we have found grace in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for a, for a possession, and bring us not over Jordan. Excuse me, I'm fighting a cold here tonight. But these, these two tribes join together, and everybody else is excited about the next phase of the journey. Everybody else is looking forward to getting over to the promised land. But there's something inside of Reuben and Gad that they said that the land that we're in right now is more ideal for our mindset that we have right now. It's more ideal for our cattle. And we would like to stay where we're at instead of pursuing the promises of God. We would rather dwell here in this land than cross over Jordan and be in the promised land. We're comfortable where we're at, and where we're at right now is more accommodating to our worldly possessions. It's more accommodating to our profession. This was their career. They became herdsmen. They had, they had cattle. And 
A few years ago, as I began to study this, this story out, there was several things that, that I feel like you have to piece together in order to understand what happened here. Because we know in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is, is doling out promises to his children, that he comes to Reuben and he declares over Reuben in Genesis 49 verse 4, and he says that you are unstable as water, and thou shalt not excel. That's the prophecy that is placed over his life, that you are as unstable as water, and you're not going to excel. So I can understand a Reuben that's unstable as water, that we know beforehand that he's not going to excel. I can understand him stopping short of the promised land. But what I don't understand is I don't understand the Gad because Gad had a prophecy over him, over his life, and he says, Jacob said to him that a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at last. So Reuben has a prophecy over him that you're going to fail, you're never going to excel. But Gad has a prophecy that you're going to get overtaken, but the victory is going to be yours in the end, that you're going to overcome at last. We know that Reuben's unstable as water, but in another place, the Bible would tell us that the men of Gad were lion-like men. They were men that were built for war. They were built for the challenge. They were built for that next dimension. They were your ideal men to send in front of you into the promised land. They were unstoppable because of the prophecy that was over them. Where in the world did Gad go wrong? We find out later in, in Joshua, because some of the men of Gad and, and, and the, the, the men of Reuben, they said, we'll leave our families here and we're going to set up our dwelling place here. This is where we're going to dwell. But we'll come with you to war. We'll come with you and help you to conquer these cities, but then we're going to go back and dwell on the other side of the promises of God. And somehow... Manasseh, when it's all said and done in Joshua, Manasseh says, I'm going back with them. I want to go live on the other side of the Jordan with Reuben and with Gad. I don't think it's a coincidence that when you look at the configuration of the camp, that you've got Reuben's tent, then you've got Gad's tent, and then you've got Manasseh's tent. All three of those are in a line. And that's where you can find Manasseh is, is one of the sons of Joseph. This is a son with promise. He comes from, from a great heritage. He comes from a man that was mightily used by God. But where does his lineage go wrong? It all goes back to Reuben. Unstable as water. I submit to you tonight that Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, they dwelt together in the camp that Manasseh and Gad's biggest mistake was they dwelt in the wrong place. And where you dwell influences where you will abide. So that influence was in their life. And when it came time, somehow, some way, Reuben began, it's those conversations around the campfire. I've met Reubens in my life. Reubens are smooth talkers. 
Rubens know how to get right in on your convictions and make you feel stupid for believing what you believe. Rubens know how to, to come at you and say, really, you think God expects that of you? Rubens know how to pick apart the church. Rubens are just smooth talkers. By the time they're done talking, they're just dripping with honey, and you're just, you're sold. And Gad and Manasseh are dwelling with Reuben. And then when that temporary place of dwelling, when it's time to move in a permanent place of abiding, of walking into the promised land and abiding in the promises of God and going to what they had been fighting for, what they'd been dreaming for, what God had delivered them for. Literally, they were walking into their season. They were walking into their promises. They were walking into their destiny. But they said, no, nah, we're good. We're going to just stay back over here. It's that Reuben spirit. You dwell with them, it'll start making sense. You hang around the Rubens, man, they, they can convince you that it's, young ladies, it's cool to date a guy that's not in church. I mean, like, God wants you to help him get saved. It makes sense. It's like, God, you really think that God expects you to not take this promotion because it's going to make you miss church? Like, this is God trying to bless you. It's those influences in our life. And somehow together, they came up with this mentality that these cattle are more important than the promised land. The reason they didn't cross over into the promised land is they said, where we're at right now is better better for the cattle. What they were really saying, the, the children of Israel were never called to herd cattle. They were shepherds. They came down to Egypt because of the famine, and Pharaoh asked Joseph, he says, hey, what do you brothers do? Like, what's their occupation? They salesmen, or like, what, what do they do? And he said, well, they, they're, they're, they take care of sheep. He's like, okay, cool, we got some cattle. Go put them over the cattle. We'll make them herdsmen. So they're taking what they picked up in Egypt. The career they got in Egypt, the possessions they got in Egypt, Those are the things that will always stop you from the promised land. God's trying to bring you over here to your destiny. But your destiny collides with your past. The things that we know that Egypt is a type of the world. The things that you pick up in the world, they don't fit into the promised land. They're not going to thrive there. They're not going to survive there. So there's that point in your life where you have to decide, are these cattle more important than the promises of God? And I expect that of you, Reuben, but Gad, where did you go wrong? Manasseh, what in the world happened? Why would you pick this, the things of the world, the things you accumulated in Egypt? How are those more important than the promises of God? It's putting a priority on the wrong things. I've been there. I've been in that position of, I, I'll never forget one of the hardest decisions I ever made was a job that I applied for and felt like I'd prayed for it. 
God, I want you to give this to me. I'm your child. I've got favor. I believe this is mine. And then I get the phone call that says, hey, this is yours. But remember what you said about how you can't work on Sundays? That's not going to work. They led with this is yours, so I'm already excited. And now the ball's in my court of is this mine or is it not? Do I want to stay here or do I want to continue into the promises of God? What am I going to choose? And that's where your priorities, you've you, you got to make up your mind before you get in those decisions. You've got to make up your mind before the situation and the opportunity presents itself that this is my priority. You know, when you really look at principle-based living, when you have a set, a set list of principles, decisions are so much easier to make. I don't have to make decisions about what I'm going to do on Sunday. Or Tuesday night, or Saturday night, or Monday morning. (laughs) Because I have a principle that God is number one in my life. And I don't think that you have to make it to church every time the doors are open to make it to heaven. But I have a principle in my life that, God, I am devoting my efforts and energy to furthering your kingdom and to being a member of this church and to being a member of the body of Christ. That is my principle. And I understand that things come up and there's times, but, but if you have to make a decision of, do I completely give this up so I can live in this, the things of this world, or am I ready to go into the promises of God? You've been dwelling in the wrong place, and you're getting ready to set up camp and abide in the wrong place. I, I get concerned when I see parents that will cart their kids all over the country to go to football camps, to go to volleyball tournaments. <laughs> I'm not the pastor here, so I'm trying to be careful. I'm treading lightly here. They'll take them all over the place and spend all kinds of money on them to go do all the, they'll take them to track meets out of state. But you mentioned, hey, we got to, we, we're, we're trying to get some money together and like, you, you think you could maybe get a little bit to send your kids to uh, to holiday youth convention? Oh, we don't have the money right now. I get concerned about parents that are making those types of decisions for their children because they're showing them that this is our priority. And we're saying, hey, the promises are over here. We understand you had to function in, the, in this realm. But that, that's not where your eternal destiny is. That's not where you need to abide. We're progressing. We're just strangers and foreigners in this land. This, the, the old timers used to sing a song that said, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. When you understand that, your job doesn't become your priority. Your earthly possessions don't become your priority. But making it to heaven becomes your priority. Is God, my life has to please you. But I get concerned when I see people that begin to place the priority on these things from Egypt. You're like, where were your, where were your kids on Friday night? Oh, you know, I was tired from getting off work. I didn't feel like driving them in and fighting traffic. Well, I get that, but you take them to every football game they have. Okay, I'm going to get off this. 
these are worldly mindsets. The, the church, the, it's amazing to me what is, what is, and I'm only 32 years old, so I don't, I don't have a, a whole lot to pull back on, but when I look back over what has crept into the mindset of the church, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me, and, and it really hit me hard as, as, we, were, as we were reading um, John chapter 15. And he talks about how that, that, uh, that he that doeth my commandments is my friend. And we got all kinds of people prancing and dancing around in Christianity, singing, I am a friend of God, living any old way they want to. They don't want to alter their lifestyle. They don't want to alter the way that they walk. They don't want to alter the way that they talk. They don't want to change anything that they do. They just want to come into church and make themselves feel better and just dance around and sing, I am a friend of God. Jesus said, you're my friend if you do my commandments. We are not a subculture of this world. And that is what Christendom has has become today, is we try to be a subculture. We try to make make Jesus hip. We try to make the cross hip, and we try to to make all this stuff modernized. But but at the the end of the day, we are a a counterculture to a a Christianity that's trying to be a subculture. Our principles are going to cross at some point, and we're going to say, you know what? You can stay right here if you want to. Reuben, you can stay. Gad, you can stay. Manasseh, you can go back with them. I'm going to the promises of God. I'm going where God has called me. I'm not going to abide over onto that side. When you read Psalm chapter 1, the first verse, if you could put that up for me. Really what you're reading is the opposite progression of a backslider. If you, if, you ch- if you take not out of all of these, you're really looking at a backslider. This is the progression of backsliding. Blessed is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. I've seen this time and time and time again. People start walking with the wrong crowd, and the next thing you know, they start standing with that crowd. They're stopping and they're engaging in their activities, but then they know how to get back over to the Christian side. It's like they're playing, they're playing like hopscotch with, with the Jordan River. Of, uh, I'm on the promises of God, and then I'm over here with, with Manasseh and Reuben and Gad, and they know how to go back and forth and, and back and forth and back and forth. But then there's that deciding moment where they sit in the seat of the scornful. These are the postures that he's, he's talking about a blessed man, that, that a man that is blessed, he has a posture where he is not standing in the wrong places. He's not walking with the wrong people, and he's not sitting in the wrong places. I find it interesting that these same postures, you'll find if you go and read the book of Ephesians, the first thing Ephesians starts out with is it talks about sitting in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then it talks about walking in the light and walking in Christ. And then at last it talks about standing, having done all the stand, stand therefore, and having on the armor of God, that these are postures and these are positions. Either you're standing for God, you're walking in God, you're sitting in heavenly places in Christ, or you're, you're, walking, you're walking the wrong direction, you're standing with the wrong crowd, and you're sitting with the wrong crowd. Where you dwell influences 
where you will abide. And where you abide influences what you will worship. The next verse, Psalm 1-2, says, For his delight, this blessed man that's walking right, that's standing right, that's sitting right, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. This is a promise to the person that lives right, that dwells in the right place, that abides in the right place. And when you walk, stand, and sit correctly, your delight will be in God. Automatically, you'll be in a position of worship and acknowledgement of God and God's laws and God's ways. Because where you dwell influences where you abide. And where you abide influences what you worship. This is a whole other message. But there comes a point where the other tribes, the children of Israel, come to Reuben and Gad. And they say, hey, what, like, we heard you guys are building altars. Are you like worshiping false gods now? What's going on? We, we agreed that you could be over here, but what's this altar building going on? We're like, we're worshiping the true God over here. If you're going to be here, you can't be doing this. And they say, oh, no, 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 no. We're, we're, we're worshiping the one true living God. We want our children to know about worshiping this God. So when they get together with their cousins, that, that they have something to talk about, and they're not caught off guard, we're just kind of doing this, and there's a statement that the Bible makes that gave me chills when I read it. Is they, they, they made the statement that we're doing this for appearance sake. And I see people that come to church sometimes for appearance sake, that I can check it off my list today. I want my kids to know Sunday school. I want my kids to know the songs. I want my kids to know what it's like to come out on Sunday. But we're really just doing this for the fellowship. There's no transformation. We're still going to live over here. We're not, we're not coming over to you yet. We're not ready to make that commitment to come to the promised land. We're still going to live over here. But we want to have what you have over there. We want to try to bring it over here. They thought that they could live a life that was influenced by the love of the world. But somehow bring God over to their side. Make Jesus fit into their box. But John tells us to love not the world neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can fake it. You can build altars. You can have a smooth talk track of why you're doing what you're doing, and you can be convincing. But if you love the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in you. So they're in this position where they want to build altars. 
They want to talk the talk. But they don't want to make the commitment. They don't want to be a part of where God was calling them, what God was calling them to do. And they didn't realize. You know, if you could, if you could rewind history and sit down with Gad and Manasseh, and read First Chronicles 5, 25, and 26 to them. They'd probably say, hey, uh, Moses, you mind if we move our tents over there because I don't want my kids around Reuben's kids. Manasseh would probably say, I don't want to be anywhere around this. I don't want to dwell in this type of environment. That's why I, I'm careful. You call me crazy and call me controlling, but I'm, I'm careful who I want my, my family to be close to and to be engaged with. I'm careful. I'm careful about the, the people that, that I'm comfortable, their voice speaking into my wife's life and speaking into my children's life and speaking into my life. I don't need no Reuben around. If you're unstable as water, you go get that together and then you come on back. I don't need you speaking in my life. We don't need to hang out by the campfire. I have got a responsibility. I've got a responsibility to be a light in this community. I've got a responsibility to lead my family to heaven. I've got a responsibility that I have to be saved. I don't have time to put up with a Reuben that's unstable. And yes, you, we have to be patient with people. That's our mission. That's our responsibility. That's, that's what this church is all about. We're a church that accepts Reubens. You're not going to influence the way that we think. And there is going to be a limited relationship until you get it together. Because you're not going to influence my family. You're not going to influence my values. Men, who, who speaks into your life? What kind of voices are you listening to? What kind of talk shows are you listening to? What kind of things are you reading? The men that that have influence in your life, how, how do they treat women? How, I'll get there in a second, ladies. <laughs> how do they treat their kids? Ladies, the, the blogs you read and the people you follow on Facebook and the things you're looking at and liking and, and, and reading and sharing, what kind of Christian values do they promote? Because where you dwell influences where you're going to abide. There's so much noise all around us that we have got to have the mind of God in this generation. We have got to have discernment that says, my eyes aren't going to dwell there. My thoughts aren't going to dwell there. My mind's not going to dwell there, and I sure am not going to dwell there. My kids aren't going to dwell there. I'm not going to let these influences into my home. I'm not going to let 45 minutes of that TV show influence my family while we sit and dwell there thinking that it's not going to alter how we live and how we think. What kind of fake plastic diva from Hollywood is making you feel bad about yourselves, lady?
we, we, have, we have to be aware of the voices that are speaking into our lives. We have to watch out for the Rubens, and we have to call them what they are. Because if, we, if you dwell with that mindset long enough, you're going you're gonna to find yourself saying, you know what, this just makes sense. I mean, these cattle are awesome. Who doesn't like a good ribeye? <laughs> these things are great. Forget about the promises of God. We've got this. I've got enough to make me happy right now. I have need of nothing more. And they thought, I believe that in their hearts, they really believed that we can stay here on the other side of the promised land and we can just build altars here and our kids can be saved. They're going to worship the true God. We're not going to walk away from what we believe but we're not going over there to the promises of God where God's calling us to be. It's the people I see that say, well, I, one of the most overused phrases in this generation right now is uh, when you ask people what religion they are, well, I'm not religious, I'm all about a relationship. That sounds so much like something Reuben would say. You haven't been to church in like six months. You don't have a single Bible in your house, but I'm all about a relationship. All right, I'll get off that. But they thought that they could stay here and have what they have over here and never make that transition. But what we read in 1 Chronicles 5.25, this is Reuben, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe. Of Manasseh. They came, and the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of the kings, and he carried them away, even the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and brought them to Hela and Habar and Hara, and under the river Gozon unto this day. God stirred up the hearts. They transgressed against the God of their fathers and went whoring after the God of the people of the land whom God destroyed before them. They thought that we could continue to live this life but really worship the true God. But they forgot about that third element. That where you dwell influences where you abide. And where you abide will ultimately influence what you worship. They begin to worship the God of the land. They begin to worship the God of the people of the land. But he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I don't know about you tonight, but I'm so thankful I am so, so thankful that I have a dwelling place, that when this world gets too rough, when this world gets too hard, when this world starts to stress me out, that I'm going to my dwelling place. My dwelling place isn't on the other side of Jordan, but my dwelling place is in the promises of God. Because I know if I can dwell in God, wherever God's leading me, wherever God has placed me, if I can dwell in God, then I will abide under the shadow of the Almighty, 
That means that, that, that the shadow that he's giving off, it's, it's a shadow of protection. It's a shadow of provision. I am in the presence of the almighty God. I am abiding in his presence. And once you've got those two things right, once you've got it right of where I'm dwelling, and once you get it right of where I'm abiding, you will have that proclamation in your spirit, just like if it was Moses that wrote this, just like Moses had. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him will I trust. I'm not going to trust in the things of this world. I'm not going to trust in the things that I picked up along the way. I'm not going to trust in the things that God has blessed me with, but I'm trusting in God because these things can come and go. These jobs can come and go. This money can come and go, but I'm trusting in God because I'm abiding in God. Don't ever get that wrong. Don't ever get messed up on where you're dwelling. If it's been a while since you've just gone into God's presence to say, you know what, God, I'm not here with an agenda. I don't have a list. I don't even know what you're going to talk to me about. I don't know what I'm going to talk to you about. But I just want you to know that I'm here right now. I'm here to dwell in your presence. I'm here to talk to you. If there's something in my life that you need to see changed, if there's something I need to leave behind so I can go where you want me to go, I need you to speak to me because I want to dwell where you want me to dwell. I want to abide in your presence. And I want to worship the one and only true God. Dwelling in God's presence will never happen by accident. That Sometimes, like, I get so excited if I'm, like, driving and God just shows up in a powerful way in my car. That's, like, awesome because I didn't even have to carve out any time for it. Like, God, you just came to where I was at. You fit me in your schedule. I didn't have to fit you in my schedule. But those moments are few and far between. If you're going to dwell in God, it's going to be because you made up your mind that I'm going to dwell in God. Me dwelling in God is more important than that extra 45 minutes of sleep. Me dwelling in God is more important than these little menial tasks that we, we live the busiest, most unproductive lives nowadays. There's so many little menial things that could be stripped out of our lives and you wouldn't even miss them. If you're going to dwell in God, it's because you grabbed some of those things and said, I'm taking control of my schedule. It's not going to control me. God's presence is going to control me. My desire to be with God is going to control me. My desire to be in the presence of God. My desire to have the mind of Christ. My desire to live a life that pleases God is going to be my main priority and my main objective. You have to be intentional about it. Otherwise, you will live your life frustrated that you don't have time to be with God. If you would stand with me tonight. There is a lot of darkness in this world. There is a lot of shadows that try to creep in and cover us. But David said that one thing have I desired of the Lord, 
and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And then he says in Psalms 23, verse 6, that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And he's not talking about a physical house. He's not talking about a structure. He's not talking about four walls. But the house of God is that embodiment of the presence of God. It's that embodiment of the glory of God. It's, it's that embodiment that we know that God doesn't dwell in a temple made with men's hands, but God dwells inside of us now. We are the temple of the Holy Ghost. I wonder if all across this room, if you wouldn't just carve a few minutes out of your schedule. I know that I know it's a Tuesday night, you've been working, but if you wouldn't just lift your hands right now and say, God, that's my desire. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. If I'm ever going to have it, it's going to be because I seek after it. It's going to be because I pursue it. It's because I make it a priority. It's because I take the time to do it. It's because I make sure that I make time every single day in my schedule. I've got to dwell in the presence of God. I've got to dwell in the house of God. I've got to feel that shadow of the Almighty God over me. I've got to be covered by the shadow of God. I've got to be covered by the presence of God. I've got to be covered by the hand of God. That ought to be your prayer, fathers, is I want your I want your presence to be a shadow over my home. Mothers, you ought to get up every morning and say, God, I want your presence to abide in this house. I want your presence to abide where my children are today. I want your presence to abide at the school. I want your presence to abide on the bus. I want that shadow of God to be over them. My children, wherever they go, I want that shadow of God to be over my husband, to be over my wife, wherever they are. I need that shadow of God in my life today. Oh, Jesus, we want to dwell in you. We want to dwell in you. God, we want to dwell in you. We want to abide in your presence. We want to abide under your shadow. God, we want to become worshipers of the name of Jesus. God, we refuse to let the things of this world influence the way that we view you and the way that we praise you and the way that we prioritize you. God, we want you to know in our lives that you are the number one priority, that your presence is our priority, that walking before you holy and righteous is our priority. God, to worship you is our priority. To worship you, we live, Jesus. Every move we make, everything that we say, God, we want it to bring you glory. We we wanted to bring you honor. We wanted to bring praise to the name of Jesus. We wanted to bring praise to your name, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We want our lives to glorify you, God. We want our lives to glorify you, Jesus. We want our lives to glorify you, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, God, help us to recognize, Jesus, where we're dwelling and the influence it has on where we're abiding. God, and the influence that has on what we're worshiping, Jesus. I pray that you would be with us. Jesus, in your name. Jesus, in your name.